0: Thank you very much um, for those uh, warm words of welcome. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm, uh, I, I hadn't actually been much aware of Oshaw College until I had this kind invitation to come here this evening, and I, when I learned a little bit about it, I was determined to come, especially because I discovered that the, the great Irish parliamentarian and father of Catholic emancipation, Daniel O'Connell, was a student of this college when it was located in uh, Doei. So that particular connection certainly um, means a lot to me because in the last number of years I've been doing quite a lot of work on Daniel O'Connell. I've spoken twice now at the O'Connell Summer School in Derrynan, in the um southwest, the far south west of Ireland in in, um, in County Kerry and of course O'Connell, the O'Connell family are a very good example of the sort of um, uh, the way in which certain families like the Racusan families in uh, England and managed to weather the storm of uh, the penal times in Ireland and the O'Connell family managed to hold on to their land and to be, to be quite a prosperous family to the point where uh, it was possible for the family to send the young Daniel off to uh, the continent to be educated in a great Catholic school or some great Catholic schools on the continent, so that's one reason certainly why I'm delighted to be here um, I don't normally I have a, a paper written but I don't I normally talk rather than lecture so what I will do is I will put this um, paper on the embassy uh, website in the next few days when I've made some final adjustments to it and then it will be available for anyone who wants to read it and uh, I will also tweet a link to it on my Twitter account at Dan for any of you who are conversant with social media. Now, um, it's great to be here at Osho College and it's great to be here especially during this centenary year when we are remembering that momentous year in Irish history, when remembering those who fought and died in Ireland during the Easter Rising and indeed on the Battle of the Somme, in the Battle of the Somme where so many Irish from all over the island of Ireland, from all traditions and all religious backgrounds, fought and died together at that terrible battle of the Somme. Now, the Easter Rising has been described as a poet's rebellion, not because of these two who wrote about the Rising, but obviously didn't take part in the Rising, um, but because uh, you have, of the seven signatories of the proclamation of the Irish Republic issued on Easter Monday 1916 perhaps unbelievably three of them were published poets. That's probably a pretty unusual um, uh, phenomenon in um, revolutionary history that almost half of the leadership of the Easter Rising were published poets and indeed if if you include James Connolly who wrote plays and uh, political tracts then more than half of those who led the rising were, had published uh, works of literature. So we're talking then tonight about Patrick Pearce, Thomas McDonough and Joseph Mary Plunkett who spent two years as a philosopher at, or in the philosophy class at uh, Stonyhurst College in Lancashire uh, in his early years. Um, and then I will also talk a little bit about wb George Russell and indeed uh, Sean O'Casey. Now I should begin really by some explanations about the Easter Rising. The Easter Rising began on Easter Monday 1916 it took almost everyone by surprise because Over the weekend, the head of the leader of the Irish Volunteers, Owen MacNeill, a distinguished Irish historian working at University College Dublin, had called off manoeuvres that had been planned for Easter Sunday of that year. He called them off because he discovered that a secret plot had been hatched to turn these manoeuvres into an insurrection, to a rebellion. So he called them off, and that meant that The numbers involved when finally the volunteers did come out and occupy quite a few public buildings in Dublin, the numbers involved were greatly reduced. And some 1,500 volunteers, Irish volunteers and members of the Irish Citizen Army, occupied some public buildings and held out for six days before surrendering. Now, between the 2nd of May and the the 12th of May, 15 leaders of the rebellion were executed and, of course, Roger Casement was subsequently executed in London at Pentonville Prison in August 1916. Now, the Irish public who were initially hostile to the rising um, changed their attitude towards the rising for a number of reasons, including the impact of the executions on Irish public opinion. But there were other factors as well. So that by the time the First World War came to an end in 1918. Home rule or what we would call devolution today, which applies in Scotland and Wales, uh, no longer satisfied Irish nationalist opinion following the rising and by the time the war came to an end in 1918, Sinn Féin who were the inheritors of the mantle of the 1916 leaders won a resounding victory in the election of December 1918 and that led on to the establishment of the Irish Free State in 1922 now by the way I have to say that the Sinn Féin who um, who were who became the I mean the the Easter Rising was not organised by Sinn Féin Sinn Féin was actually a party founded in 1905 by a man called Arthur Griffith and he was not a Republican at all, he was a Jew monarchist he believed in creating a dual monarchy between Britain and Ireland, along the lines of the Austro Hungarian dual monarchy that existed from eighteen sixty one onwards. So he was inspired really by the Hungarian example and wanted to create a a dual monarchy between Britain and Ireland. So it's a different party from from the one that might be more might be better known uh, in the last thirty years or so, uh, the modern party which is quite a different party from, from, from the Sinn Féin that existed before 1916. Now after the Easter Rising of course Sinn Féin then adopted a Republican policy uh, and started to campaign for the creation of an Irish Republic. Now why did the Rising take place? Well there are two basic reasons in my view. There are lots of reasons. I mean I could talk about it forever but we don't have forever. We only have a, a, a few more, a few minutes to cover this. But essentially there were two reasons. And the first was The failure to deliver Home Rule in time. Home Rule, or self-government, or devolution it would be called today, had been a demand of the Irish Parliamentary Party at Westminster since the 1870s. And in 1885, Gladstone, who was then Prime Minister, decided to introduce the first Home Rule Bill, which was introduced to the British Parliament in 1886. The problem was that 28 years later, when the First World War broke out, Home Rule still hadn't been delivered. The third Home Rule Bill was introduced in 1912, but because of resistance from the Ulster Volunteers, Home Rule was delayed and finally it was implemented, it was introduced in September of 1914 but already at that time the war had broken out and therefore the implementation of Home Rule was was delayed, was postponed until the end of the war. Now had had the war come to an end in 1915 quite likely Home Rule would have been applied at that stage and therefore there probably would not have been an Easter Rising. But because Home Rule was delayed for so long it gave the more radical Nationalists who were sceptical about parliamentary nationalism which has been the uh, the mainstay of uh, the Irish nationalist tradition for most of the 19th century Daniel O'Connell, Isaac Butt, Charles Stuart Parnell these were all parliamentarians who fought the Irish cause at Westminster through peaceful parliamentary agitation but there were more radical nationalists and the fact that Home Rule was delayed and the crisis that erupted between 1912 and 1914 meant that the more radical nationalists were given an opportunity to assert themselves. And then the second factor was the outbreak of the First World War. When the war broke out, Nationalist Ireland was divided. The majority of those who had been members of the Irish Volunteers set up in 1913 followed the advice of the party leader, the leader of the Irish party, John Redmond, MP, who said that the Irish should sign up should enlist to fight on the battlefields of the First World War in order to justify the granting of home rule so basically he was saying your duty as an Irish man, as an Irish nationalist is to go and enlist and fight on the battlefields of the First World War in pursuit of the principles that Britain and Ireland shared now that Britain had granted home rule to Ireland even though home rule had not been implemented at that stage. And then a minority refused to go along with Redmond and they decided to remain in Ireland to continue to mobilise, to, continue to train in order to fight for Home Rule if Home Rule failed to be delivered after the First World War as had been promised. So you had a division within Nationalist Ireland and the minority which still consisted of some 15,000 people who were members of the Irish Volunteers that minority organisation after the war broke out when all the parliamentarians went off to promote and to um, argue for for recruitment. They, in other words um, they, Redmond and his followers um, continued to, to argue in favour of Irish people um, enlisting for service in the First World War. But the minority who stayed at home they came under the influence of a republican organisation called the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which was a secret society, and they were the ones that eventually organized and orchestrated and engineered the outbreak of the Easter Rising on Easter Monday, 1916. So the combination of a delay in delivering home rule and the outbreak of the First World War provided opportunity for the more radical nationalists to assert themselves and to organize a rebellion against British rule on Easter week 1916. Now, turning to the three writers that signed the proclamation of the Irish Republic. Essentially all three were cultural nationalists. In other words, they were not lifelong Republicans. Some of the other people involved in the Rising had been Republicans, Fenians for their whole lives like Thomas Clark, who was the oldest of the insurgents who were executed after the Rising. He was a lifelong Republican. Sean McDermott, another a younger man, likewise, had always been a, a committed Republican. The three we're talking about here, portray Pierce, Thomas McDonough, Joseph Plunkett, all of them became involved in nationalist politics by becoming involved in the movement to revive the Gaelic language. The Gaelic League was founded in 1893 and it became an obsession for the rising Catholic middle class in Ireland at the turn of the century. And virtually everyone got involved, everyone who was educated, teachers, civil servants and so on, all threw themselves with enthusiasm into the idea of reviving the Gaelic language. So, now, let's, let's start with, with um, Patrick Pierce. Now, Pierce, Pierce's father actually has a connection with this um, college because you have lots of architecture from Pugin. Well, Pierce's father moved to Ireland in the 1860s in order to. He was a sculptor. He was a, a monumental sculptor and he went to ireland in order to take part in the great boom that occurred after the famine in the building of gothic revival fusion inspired churches in ireland so many of the churches in ireland date from that period and pierce's father was a, uh, was a was a, a, a stone sculptor from the midlands of england moved across to ireland and became part of this growing um, group of, of, of church uh, sculptors who uh, produced the great um, works of, of, of religious sculpture and religious architecture that um, characterised uh, Ireland in the, uh, the 50 years after the Great Famine as Ireland recovered from the Great Famine and many of the churches of Ireland were built at that time so Pierce's father was part of that gothic revival, that neo-gothic revival now, Pierce graduated from uh, university, he had studied languages, and he immediately became involved in the Gaelic League. He was editor of the Gaelic League journal on Clive Solish, or the Sword of Light. He edited that journal for a number of years, from the time he was in his early 20s. So, at an extraordinarily young age, he threw himself into the language revival movement. Now, Pierce was, um, he, he was inclined, like many of his contemporaries, and this applied to Yeats and George Russell as well. They were inclined to idealize Gaelic Ireland. Russell once said, the gods have come down from the sacred mountains and they have lit the ancient fires in Ireland. In other words, he believed that Ireland was a sort of a, a sp- kind of a spiritual... Um, Island, were favoured by the ancient gods who had come down from the sacred mountains. WBH once wrote in an essay in the 1890s that Ireland is one of the seven great fountains in the garden of the world's imagination. In other words, they did not lack ambition for this new Ireland that was emerging in the late 19th century. And likewise with Pierce. Here's a quote from one of Pierce's essays. He said, the Gael was not like other men. A destiny more glorious than Britain or Rome awaited him. Quote, to become the saviour of idealism in modern intellectual and social life. So you can see that the Gaelic League was not just a movement to revive the Irish language. It was a movement to revive interest and enthusiasm in all aspects of Irish culture. And it generated this belief that there was something special about Ireland. That there was something embedded in ancient Ireland. I mean, Yeats in one of his last poems under Ben Bulban wrote, And ancient Ireland knew it all. This was the the ethos of the late 19th century, that there was something special in the ancient culture of Ireland, in, in the mythology of Ireland. And that somehow the Irish peasantry, the rural people of Ireland, had that wisdom, that, that ancient wisdom embedded in them. And it was part of Yeats' mission to try and unleash some of this vision and to make it available through his writings to the modern world. So, um, Pierce set up his own school in Rathfarnham in Dublin. He adopted a child-centered approach to teaching and until a fairly late stage in his life Pierce supported home rule. In fact as late as 1912 he was on platforms giving speeches. He was a very fine orator not a brilliant writer but a very good orator and he was giving speeches in favour of home rule. So in other words he was not a dedicated Republican. What brought Pierce along the road towards Republicanism, towards insurrection was the failure, the crisis that erupted, which I've mentioned already, in 1912 when the third Home Rule Bill was introduced and when it looked certain that under the Parliament Act, the House of Lords could only delay the Home Rule Act by two years. The third year it would automatically become law. And that generated this rebellion in Ulster, supported by some elements of the political system in Britain, led to the formation of the Ulster Volunteers, and then in response, Owen McNeil and others established the Irish Volunteers. So Pierce was radicalised by the developments that occurred following the publication or the introduction of the, of the Third Home Rule Bill in nineteen twelve. Now, Pierce's poems are I think of limited value in a literary sense. But he was not not without ability as a writer. And in my opinion, his best poem is The Wayfarer, which he wrote in prison on the eve of his execution on the 3rd of May, 1916. And I quote, The beauty of the world hath made me sad, This beauty that will pass. Sometimes my heart is shaken with great joy To see a leaping squirrel in a tree Or a red ladybird on a stalk Or little rabbits in a field at evening lit by a slanting sun. So you can see he has a certain Rudyard Kipling style uh, writing ability. But perhaps more characteristic of his writing was a poem he wrote called I am Ireland. I am Ireland. I am older than the old woman of Bear. Great my glory. I bore Cúchulainn the valiant. Cúchulainn was the ancient mythological Irish hero. And of course Cúchulainn became a major inspiration for Yeats, who towards the end of his life, asked um, about KoCollen and the General Post Office and felt that KoColin was the inspiration behind the Easter Rising. Now of course, Pierce, in his latter years, identified more and more with KoCollllen and saw himself as a man who had a mission to sacrifice himself in order to save Ireland by inspiring uh, a new generation of Irish people to aspire towards freedom. So, in the decades after the rising, Pierce became the epitome of Irish republicanism, Irish nationalism. He was seen as, I mean, when I was at school in Waterford with the Christian Brothers in the 60s, the time of the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising, Pierce was seen as a, a saintly figure. And for example, his first biographer, a man called Um, Louis Leroux wrote of him in religious terms. He said, quote, Pierce was more than a patriot. He possessed all the qualities which go to the makings of a saint. It would not be astonishing if Pierce were canonized someday. So Pierce's image, of course, in the intervening 50 years has developed quite a bit. And now I think we see him as a more complex personality, he was a man of—he had a complex personality, shall we say? He—he, he, um, but he was a—he was a talented man, driven by a sort of a, a desire to, um, to, a drive to sacrifice himself in what he saw as the higher cause of Irish freedom. Now, my old professor at UCC, uh, Cork. Uh, Joly, who wrote the entry on uh, Pierce in the um, Dictionary of Irish Biography, said that part of his aim was to, to save Pierce from his idolaters and his demonizers because he's tended to have both. There are some who see him as a sort of almost an evil genius and others who see him as a kind of a saintly figure in hagiographical terms. And Jolie suggested that his role as an educationist in the longer run, he felt his cultural legacy might prove to be at least as significant as his political legacy. So views of, 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 of Pierce are changing and more and more interest now being being um, um, devoted to his his cultural legacy rather than his political uh, impact. Now of the three poets of the Rising, MacDonagh was probably the most dedicated writer. And in Yeats' view, because Yeats refers to him in Easter 1916 and he said that he was coming into his force. In other words, Yeats thought that Macdonald was maturing into a very fine writer. His potential was probably more as a literary critic than as a poet. He was born into a middle class family in in County Tipperary and he went to the prestigious Rockwell College, one of the leading... Uh, colleges in Munster at that time and indeed today, where he began to prepare for the priesthood with the Holy Ghost Order before suffering a crisis of belief. He went on to become a teacher at two leading Catholic schools in Kilkenny and in Fermoy, County Cork. Now, MacDonough once described himself as, quote, the best West Britisher in Ireland. In other words, he was so immersed in English literature, he wrote his thesis, his MA thesis on Thomas Campion, the Elizabethan poet. So he was steeped in, in, in English culture. But in the early part of the 20th century when he was working as a teacher in Kilkenny, he went along to a, a meeting of the Gaelic League. He went along by his own account to scoff at these silly people who were trying to revive this uh, ancient language that had no value at all in the modern world. And he was captivated, he was totally won over and became a complete, committed Gaelic League. And this was the start of Macdonald's progression towards radical nationalism. He talked about the Gaelic League as a baptism in nationalism. So he was very much inspired by the desire, by the movement to revive the Irish language. It always intrigues me, and I wrote about this in The Guardian this year to commemorate the Easter Rising. It always astonishes me how someone like McDonagh, who had, by the time The Rising took place, he was a published poet, he was an established literary critic, he was a lecturer at University College Dublin, no doubt would have gone on to have a stellar career, and yet he decided to take part in this madcap venture which was almost bound to lead to his death. Because I think once they signed the proclamation of the Republic, they identified themselves as leaders of the rising. And that meant that they were essentially signing their own death warrants. Because they must have known that it wasn't possible that they could have succeeded in defeating, in overcoming the massive odds against them and gaining a military victory in Dublin. In any case, the rising was a very old-fashioned kind of rising in that the insurgents took over main big buildings in Dublin and basically sat there waiting to be overwhelmed by superior force. Uh, after the First World War, when the War of Independence broke out, the Irish um, uh, Republicans obviously learned the lesson from the Easter Rising that that was not a very good idea and, and therefore they turned to uh, guerrilla... Um, tactics which were obviously much more effective but macdonald became involved and more and more became absorbed in politics and he started off with the gaelic league he was involved in 1913 in trying to broker a settlement to the great labor dispute of that year and then when the irish volunteers were formed he immediately became one of the leaders of the volunteers and a very effective organizer so he, his progression was quite steady from, um, from, from West Britisher a person with an interest in English culture, to language revivalists, to sympathiser with the Dublin workers in 1913, member of the Irish Volunteers, and then only a weeks before the Easter Rising was he sworn in to the oath-bound secret society, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which led The Rising of 1916. Now now his poetry has that aching, late romantic tone. Mid an isle I stand, under its only tree, the ocean around, around life eternity. Mid my life I stand, under the boughs of thee. So, not a brilliant poet, but certainly an accomplished enough writer. He had a high opinion again of Ireland's pre-Christian Gaelic world. In other days, within this isle... As in a temple, men knew peace and won the world to peace a while till rose the pride of Rome and Greece. In other words, ancient Ireland knew it all but then came Rome and Greece and destroyed the whole thing. Um, and then he wrote a poem to his daughter Barbara. He urged her to quote, be one with the gale. In other words, stick with the gale. Be a gale. Don't be tempted by Greece or Rome or even Britain. And then he said, he predicted that even when the cities of Europe fade, quote, in Ireland still the mystic rose will shine as of old has shone, as it of old has shone. So, this idea that Ireland was somehow a mystical realm. Now, in to him, in literature in Ireland, his posthumously produced work of literary criticism, he was ahead of his time in acknowledging that modern Irish writing was a combination of English and Gaelic influences. There were, uh, there were many at that time who argued that the only cultural inspiration that ought to be valid for Irish people was the Gaelic inspiration. But MacDonagh acknowledged that the Gaelic and the English elements could combine creatively in order to produce what he called the Irish mould. Now, Joseph Plunkett was the youngest of the three poet rebels and he was, he was executed in his twenties so he had very little time to develop his, his literary skills. My own view is that of the three he was potentially a very fine writer but didn't really have time to develop fully his literary abilities. He was born into a leading Dublin family. He was by far the uh, the best off of all the, the leaders of the rising. He was from a, a very wealthy Dublin family. His father was a papal count and director of Ireland's National Museum. And the family had a huge property portfolio and they lived in, in some some comfort and splendour. He travelled all over Europe with his mother and even to the Middle East. So he was well travelled. He uh, spoke a number of languages. He was extremely well read. He spent two years at Stony Horse where he read very widely. Now, again, you kind of wonder, well, how does somebody of that background get involved in in revolutionary activity? It probably wouldn't happen today, uh, because we live in a different world now. But, again, it was the Gaelic League, it was the Irish language that brought him into public life. In his case, he was simply trying to matriculate, and at that time, in order to matriculate, you needed some knowledge of the Gaelic language. So he recruited a tutor uh, to teach him Irish. Who did he recruit but Thomas Macdonough? So he and MacDonagh became close friends and through that association he became involved in the Irish Volunteers, he became a leading figure in the Volunteers and he was a very sickly individual. I mean, he, was, he probably would have died anyway uh, shortly after 1916 had he not been executed uh, for his part in the Rising because he was, he was in very poor health for all of his life, really, but he um, he had this kind of steely determination, and seems to have uh, been one of the more effective leaders of the rising. Pierce allegedly stood around in the post office as the, the, the guns were blazing all around him, more or less giving speeches and, and you know you know writing things. But whereas I think, according to the accounts, um, Joseph Plunkett was actually quite an effective uh, military leader, and in fact Plunkett's uh, aide while he was in the general post office in, uh, during Easter week was Michael Collins, who went on to be the leading figure in the uh, war of independence thereafter. So, Brunkett um, was, um, he also went to Germany uh, in 1915 in order to, to get, get support from, from Berlin for Ireland's struggle. He went to America. He seems to have been involved in doctoring a leaked government document which was used to justify uh, the rising. So he, was, he had a fairly important role to play in The Rising, albeit that he was a man who was very ill and had just actually come out of hospital. He had a, a serious operation and during The Rising he had his uh, neck in a bandage and, and, but, he, but, he, but he dressed very well, he looked the part, he had a cane and he dressed himself like a, a military officer because he, 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 um, he was rather theatrical, I suppose, in his um, approach and his personality. Now, his poems, I think, have a genuine literary flair, and his best known poem is a religious poem, and the lines are fairly well known in Ireland at least, Um, I see his blood upon the rose, and in the stars the glory of his eyes, his body gleams amid eternal snows, his tears fall from the skies, and that poem is still part of the Stonyhurst prayer book. So, the poem is sufficiently um, regarded uh, to be part of of the prayer book of a major school here in uh, Britain. Uh, He could also write in a more secular vein I have no way to make you hear, no song will echo in your heart, now I must with fading heart fade, without meeting we must part, no song nor silence will you hear. So he married um, his um, He married a woman called Grace Gifford uh, on the eve of his execution. They were meant to have married a few weeks before he was too ill to marry. And he got permission to marry his sweetheart in Kilmainham Jail on the eve of his execution. And they parted immediately after the marriage. And she came back later that evening to visit him for ten minutes before he was executed the following morning. And by the way, I had an extraordinary experience recently. Uh, I got a a call from a, a London architect Who said he wanted to come in and see me? And he came in to show me. He had two letters written by Grace Gifford to the to the um, to the officer who ran Kilmainham Jail. And this man I met in London recently, who gave me these letters, which are now in the National Library of Ireland, Uh, he's the great uncle or he's the great nephew of this man who ran Kilmainham Jail, and was obviously a very a humane man because he kept these letters and Grace Gifford wrote to him uh, asking him for help in getting back some of the personal effects uh, that belonged to Joseph Plunkett uh, when he was executed and also she wrote to him asking him I thought this was rather poignant because she came from a, from, from a church of Ireland um, a unionist family and most of her friends were unionists and she asked the, um, the officer in charge of Kilmainham Jail Uh, If she visited her unionist friends, would they be discriminated against because she was now the um, widow of an executed Republican leader? So, there you are. Um, I don't know what the answer was, but I'm sure the answer was probably, don't worry about it, Uh, we're not not that cruel. (laughs) Anyway, um, so, um, and and this man was obviously a very humane man because uh, another letter I was given was, was from another one of the Easter Rising leaders, Eamon Kant. On the eve of his execution, he wrote a letter... To, to the um, officer in charge asking him to thank the staff of the uh, prison for their kindness to me during my brief sojourn here. There's only a three line but I mean to think that somebody at 11 o'clock four hours before their execution would have the, you know, the courtesy to sit down and, and write a letter thanking the prison staff for their courtesy towards him. An extraordinary uh, insight maybe into the, the kind of people who were involved in the rising. Um, so, um, just moving on briefly to uh, the poets who wrote about the rising. W.B. Yeats. I mean, Eastern 1916, to my mind, is the finest public poem in the English language written during the 20th century. I know Auden. some of Auden's poems are very good, and but I think Yeats's poetry, Yeats's Easter 1916, is probably the first poem by Yeats that really has a mature voice. The writing somehow brought it out in Yeats. He brought for the first time a poem from him which is both beautifully written and also powerful in its imagery and powerful in its analysis. And the famous line all change, change utterly, a terrible beauty is born no one these days can look back at the Easter Rising without thinking of Yeats's words and without being influenced by Yeats's words and I personally take the view that Yeats's description of the Easter Rising continues to be a powerful insight because he doesn't say a wonderful beauty is born or a terrible tragedy is born it's a terrible beauty and it tells you that he was ambivalent towards the rising. He recognised that it was a destructive act, that it was an act of violence that that created much sorrow, death and injury and destruction in Dublin. But he also recognised that these people had had noble ideals. So it was both an example of noble aspirations, but which had had also very negative, terrible effects. And I think that's the way we tend to see the rising these days. We tend to see both faces of the rising. When I was growing up, we only saw the beauty. No one ever talked about the sadness, the tragedy, the lives lost. One of the great things is that this year, for the centenary, there's been a focus on the leaders certainly, but not an exclusive focus. There a lot of focus on the women who were involved, who were excluded from the story 50 years ago. But also, a lot of attention paid to the victims. And indeed, there was a ceremony in Dublin during the summer to remember the British soldiers who died during the Easter Rising. There's a wall now at Glasnevin Cemetery, the Irish National Cemetery in Dublin. It has the names... Of everyone who lost their lives during the Easter Rising, including the civilians, the soldiers, the policemen. Everyone is included. So I think we've managed this year an inclusive commemoration which pays due regard and respect to both parts of Yeats' famous description of a terrible beauty. But also, Yeats actually managed to, to raise the key issue about the rising within months of the events of Easter week 1916 in his lines was it needless death after all for England may keep faith for all that is done and said so there you have Yeats asking the question did it need to happen wouldn't we have gained home rule anyway after the war why do we need to jump the gun was it needless death after all? And that question resounds to this day in the controversies that still swirl around the Easter Rising. The question is asked, was it needless death after all? And I this year have, have been doing a lot of commemoration. And I've been inspired by Yeats's terrible beauty, recognising both sides of the story. But also, by this man here, George Russell. Now Russell is far less well known than Yeats. Probably only people who have studied Irish literature would know of Russell. Now Russell was a man born in, in Lurgan, in County Armagh in 1867. So next year is actually the 150th anniversary of his birth. He moved to Dublin as a young man. He was a mystic. He was a man who saw visions. He was a fine painter. He was never. He, he went to art college but apparently could never take on any training because he just he just painted the visions that he saw and he wrote poetry which is not it's probably roughly the same level as Thomas Macdonough he's perhaps a bit more more accomplished as a poet than Macdonough but his poetry is very, it's it's quite mystical it's quite, um, it doesn't have the hardness of Yeats's later poetry which is magisterial But the thing about Russell was that he was this rather dreamy mystic. But in 1897, he introduced him to a man called Horace Plunkett. Now Plunkett was an Anglo-Irish aristocrat who started the agricultural cooperation movement in Ireland. In other words, started setting up cooperatives and saw the cooperative movement as a way of reviving the Irish economy. And Russell became an organiser. Spent his time on a bicycle, cycling around the west of Ireland, urging farmers to set up local cooperatives. And actually many of the big food companies in Ireland now are descended from the very cooperatives that were established at that time by Russell and others who worked with him. But in nineteen oh five Russell became the editor of the Irish Homestead. And the Irish Homestead was the, the, the journal of the Irish Agricultural Organisation Society. In other words, it was the journal of the cooperative movement in Ireland. And Russell wrote for the next 25 years of his life, he edited the Irish Homestead, wrote most of it himself, and then edited a paper called The Irish Statesman, set up in 1923 and continued until 1930, which was an effort to provide the new state with a a journal that would have sophisticated and balanced public debate. Now, Russell didn't write public poems. He didn't write anything like the number of poems that W.B. Yeats wrote. Because Yeats was always looking for a public issue to address in his poetry. And he wrote September 1913, uh, Easter 1916... Meditations in Time of Civil War, 1919, The Second Coming, all these poems which are very much public poems and under Bel But Russell didn't really do that. But Russell in 1916 wrote a poem about the Easter Rising. It had a very long title. Not Easter 1916, but to some I knew who die, who are dead, and who loved Ireland? It's a long, it's not a very economical uh, poetry or title for a poem. But the thing that has inspired me about this poem is that it deals not just with the men of 1916. It also deals with the women of 1916. It has a chapter. It has a verse on Constance Markovitz, but it has three verses. On three Irish men who died during the First World War. It has a verse on Tom Kettle who died on the Somme in September 1916. I recently laid a wreath in his honour at the House of Commons because Kettle had been an MP before he went to war and was killed on the Somme and wrote this great poem to his daughter which he finished off the poem by saying I di- know that we fools who lie with the foolish dead Died not for a flag, nor king, nor emperor, but for a dream born in the herdsman's shed, and for the secret scripture of the poor. So, Russell has a has a verse about him. He also has a verse about another young man, Alan Anderson, whose father was involved in the cooperative movement with A. E. Russell. And thirdly, he has a poem about, or he has a verse about Willie Redmond. And Redmond was the brother of John Redmond, and he was an MP when he died. He died in 1917. So I think that Russell is, in some ways, while not as great a poet as Yeats by any means, I mean, he can't compare with Yeats at all. There are none of these great phrases and lines that Yeats came up with so frequently. But on this particular subject, he was, he, was, he was the first, really, to recognize that we ought to respect and pay tribute to the sacrifice of those who died both in Dublin in 1916 during the Easter Rising and also on the Somme during the First World War and the last verse the second last verse he pays tribute to his own particular favourite which was James Connolly and he said this hope Onto a flame to fan, men have put life by with a smile. Here's to you, Connolly, my man, who cast the last torch on the pile. Because Russell believed that the drive for the rising had come, not from the Irish Volunteers, but from the Irish Citizen Army, a much smaller group who joined joined in with the Volunteers in 1916 and was led by James Connolly, Edinburgh-born man with an Irish background, who was a, a socialist and um, became a Republican in the last years, of, last months of his life. But then his final verse, A.E. talks about the confluence of dreams. The confluence of dreams, not just... He recognises that there are various dreams coming together in, in 1916. Not just the dreams of Irish freedom, but also the dreams of those who fought at the Somme. That clash together in our night one river, born of many streams, roll in one blaze of blinding light. So it seems to me, in conclusion, that it says something of the character of Ireland a hundred years ago, that three such literary idealists as Pierce, MacDonagh and Plunkett should have been drawn into revolutionary politics and participated in an insurrection that led to their early deaths. Remember Macdonald was in his 30s so was Pierce and Plunkett was in his late 20s. All three entered politics to the avenue of cultural nationalism. None were members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood before 1913. All three were swept up in the turbulence of the times in which they lived and they committed themselves to the struggle for independence in 1916. The formation of the Irish Volunteers in November 1913 brought the three poets into leadership positions and that led towards their early deaths in 1916. As we mark the centenary of 1916, every effort has been made to ensure an inclusive commemoration. And we focused on the fact that many of the victims were Dublin's poor, including children. In fact, the biggest selling book this year was called The Children of 1916. It was about the children, the 40 or so children who died during Easter week 1916. So there has been a focus on the victims as well as on the idealism of the leaders. With the benefit of a century of hindsight, we can now see the rising in a more rounded manner. The Rising continues to attract conflicting reactions and there are those who view it as an undemocratic, unethical and immoral act. I understand those arguments and it would undoubtedly have been preferable had Ireland achieved its independence by peaceful means. I also recognise the context in which the Rising took place, a very different context from the one that we experience today. It took place in the midst of the unprecedented violence and destruction on the Western Front between 1914 and 1916. For me, it's difficult not to be moved by the idealism of that generation. Be they the ones who willingly went out and sacrificed their lives during the First World War or those who believed that they needed to make a similar sacrifice on Ireland's behalf. So I think, that I'd like to think, going back to these two men here, that the Easter Rising can now be accurately described as a terrible beauty and a confluence of dreams. Thank you very much.